Hello, greetings and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for spending this time with us and giving us the gift of that time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Scripture. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. We're so glad that you have an interest in these matters, and we'd love to hear from you if we can be of any service to you in the faith. You can find us here where you found us. Please subscribe to us. We'd love to hear your thoughts about what you're hearing and about any way we can be of service in the comments. You can also reach out to us at VeniceRichardChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Humans have a real strong interest in the events of the future because, of course, the future is the great unknown. We have no control over it. We have no idea what's coming. And it's this great source of insecurity because we really want to know what's coming. We really want to know what's happening and how we can address it. That's why people will go to great lengths to try to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Uh, why do people invest in the horoscopes to try to see what the stars have to say about what they should be doing? Or we'll look at talk to fortune tellers and things like that. A lot of interest about what the future is going to hold. And of course, this is also very true in the Christian faith because there's a lot of interest in what is going to come in the future, especially as it relates to what is often called the end times. When you hear about the end times in our society today, the end times and that apocalyptic showdown is often talked about according to the doctrines of dispensational premillennialism, featuring a tribulation and an antichrist and a rapture and all kinds of violence and blood and gore that they try to make some movies about and really got a lot of people excited about and interested in and fueled a lot of speculation over the past few generations. Now, it is very true that in the Bible, we have a lot of people who are very interested about events in the future. Gideon wanted a sign uh, that God was going to be with him and give him victory in Judges 7. Uh, prophets were sent to Israel and warned them in the name of God that if they didn't change, disasters were going to happen or these things were going to take place among the nations. Israel didn't like what they heard. Israel didn't want it to be that way, but they recognized that prophets had been in their midst when it all came to pass as the prophets had warned them. In the New Testament, we see that this is a very abiding concern, that the Thessalonians especially were very concerned about the future and when the Lord was going to return and what that would mean for them and for uh, their fellow Christians. And so in all of the speculation that we see going on all around us all the time about the future, what does the Bible have to say to us about maybe our own time even, or the future? What can we know about what's going to happen, how things are going to go down? Or are we forsaken? Are we beyond the pale of what was revealed in Scripture so that uh, Scripture is only an imperfect guide for us in this current era? We'd like to say with confidence that God has not forsaken or abandoned us, that his eternal purpose in Christ continues. He continues to actively sustain and support the creation. Jesus is still Lord. And in fact, according to what he has made known, we are in the end times. So how are we in the end times in these last days? And what should we be expecting in these last days before the Lord returns? We are in the end times because the way that the end times ends up getting framed has been so 
terribly warped by those dispensational premillennialist views. Dispensational premillennialism is a 200-year-old line of thinking that was very popular in a lot of evangelical circles that really diminished the role of the church and looked forward to the fulfillment of a lot of the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament exactly the way the Jews of Jesus' time were expecting them to be fulfilled, and they found their hopes frustrated. In Hebrews 1 and verse 2, the Hebrews author tells us that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So why do we say that we are in the end times? It is not because we are in a seven-year period uh, waiting for a rapture and or an antichrist to come up and a temple to be rebuilt and defiled and a great tribulation and then a millennial judgment and reign of Christ uh, like we can see in dispensational premillennialism, but the recognition that Jesus lived, he died, and he is raised again in power. The death that he died, he died to never die again. The whole point of what Paul says in Romans 6 and, and the Hebrews author in Hebrews 7 through 9 is that Jesus doesn't have to keep coming back, doesn't have to keep suffering, doesn't have to keep dying. He did that once for all. That now he reigns in heaven. And he will continue to reign in heaven until he returns. And we have no reason to expect any further revelation on the matter because all that we would know about Christ has been made known by those who lived with him and bore witness to him, the apostles and their associates, and what has been recorded in the New Testament. What more can be added to that? Because none of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. None of us have experienced the word of life as John did, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1. The period inaugurated with Jesus' uh, ascension and the beginning of the proclamation of the kingdom will endure until he returns. That was the whole spirit of the message, that as you have seen the Lord Jesus ascend, he will descend in the very same way. That everything will continue until he returns. And that is how we are in the end times. We are in that time between the Lord's ascension and the Lord's return and have no expectation that there's going to be further revelation that would be added onto any of this because it has already been done and the kingdom continues to exist to glorify God in Christ. However, the apostles did want to give notice to the Christians of their own time, what were the kinds of things that were going to happen as time would go on? A lot of people, uh, even in scholarship, want to tell you that all these early Christians thought Jesus was going to return in a generation. And we certainly see evidence there are a lot of Christians who did have that kind of expectation. But the apostles always tempered that expectation. The apostles were convinced the Lord was going to return. They knew he was going to return in a time in a way that was not expected. But he was. they would tell uh, their second-generation Christians, or third-generation Christians, uh, the ones who continue to preach and teach the gospel, that there were certain tendencies that were going to be manifest in the latter days, in the last days, in the last times. And it's very instructive to see what they have to say about such things. So, for instance, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, excuse me, 
Paul is writing to the Thessalonian Christians. They've been disturbed because they've received word that Jesus already turned. They are really afraid they missed it. And Paul's saying, do not be disturbed in this way. You will know when the Lord returns that there was this man of lawlessness who had this power of lawlessness that was going to be at work and that there was going to be some believers who would fall away. This entity, this power of lawlessness was already at work when Paul was writing back in the, in, in the late 40s or 50s uh, of this era. But is it the Antichrist? A lot of people want to say it's the Antichrist. Well, Antichrist is a problematic term because it's used in the New Testament in 1 John, where John speaks of Antichrists plural. These are those who were Christians but now have left the faith because they have denied that Jesus came in the flesh. They are Antichrist because they are opposed to what Christ is really about and standing for. They have embraced a false Christ and they have exalted a false Christ. And that is why they are Antichrist. So is the man of lawlessness in his work Antichrist? Absolutely it is. But does that make him the Antichrist? As if there is one character and figure that we can see in a straight line uh, prophesied in Ezekiel Daniel into Revelation? No such person exists. No such character exists. But we do see a pattern of this Antichrist. And this spirit of Antichrist is what's active here and what is involved here. We see this in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, where Paul tells Timothy that the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and abstinence, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul is very concerned about these uh, who will depart from the faith, which means they were in the faith and will leave it. They are giving heed to the doctrines or teachings of demons, that they are going away and to accommodate the gospel to their culture or according to their lusts. They will have hardened consciences that are seared, they are liars, and they're going to bind where God has not bound in Christ. Uh, we see a similar message in 2 Timothy 4 where after exhorting Timothy to uh, continue to preach the word and to always do the work in a sober-minded way and to suffer, he says that in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, uh, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So they don't want to hear the healthy teaching anymore. That will help them grow in Christ. They want to hear the things that make them feel better about themselves and their current predicament. They're, and this can, can spread the gamut of all kinds of different things. It's not just the one uh, examples that you would uh, automatically think of. But we see that people would rather believe the lie than accept the consequences of the truth. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter has very caustic words for those who would depart from the faith and the destructive heresies that they are bringing in and manifesting how they're leading people astray. They're haughty and prideful. They were of us in the faith, and then they went and returned to the mire of the world. And the latter state is worse for them than they were before. Jude will speak a very similar thing. That's why many, especially in scholarship, think that Jude and 2 Peter are related, that maybe 2 Peter is drawing from Jude, that Jude warns about these uh, false teachers who have come in to their love feasts and who seem sincere and act all pious but really are inwardly uh, trying to lead people astray and cause all kinds of distress and to uh, divide the body and to uh, lead people away from the truth of God in Christ. And so 
uh, we, we see this uh, very much in evidence here. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it, we, don't see, we see it here, uh, but not just with the unbelievers, but, with believers, me, but also with those who uh, end up uh, being like the unbelievers. That he says in the last days there will come times of difficulty. That people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, but burdened by sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So Paul here is warning Timothy about those who profess to be believers, right? They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. But they're really all of these ugly things. And we look at that list of ugly things, Mine immediately goes to Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, Paul says, this is the consequence of idolatry. When you no longer honor God as God, but you give the glory and honor due to the Creator to His creation. God gives you over to a debased mind, you start rationalizing sex sins, and then you have this whole cavalcade of immorality and ungodliness. Uh, that sounds very much like what you see here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And of course, this is exactly what we would expect from believers who have compromised the faith. Because to what direction are they compromising the faith? They profess belief, but they are becoming more like the world. And therefore, they are as the world, and they will suffer the fate of the world. But we also see so many evocations uh, in the religious world, but also just in our secular world as well, of what's going on here. Uh, especially that idea uh, of uh, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're all on the journey, right? We're all searching. And it's true that we're on a journey and that in many ways we're searching, but that uh, the way that gets used today is to kind of justify never ending up anywhere. And yet in the Christian faith, even though we recognize we always have a journey to go on, we know who we're following, we know where he's going, we know where he is. Uh, that is not the way that it works in the religious world today. He makes appeal to Giannis and Yambres. Uh, these are the names given uh, to characters in a Bible story in Exodus 3 and 4 and 5, 6. Uh, God has spoken to Moses, sends Moses to Egypt. Uh, when Moses uh, is in Egypt, uh, we get to Exodus 6 and 7, uh, he starts doing all these signs, and you have these Egyptian magicians who are opposing him. Well, two of them were given the names Giannis and Yambres, and uh, there's some apocryphal stories about them and how they resisted Moses and were overcome by the power that God was displaying in Moses. And, and that's the kind of situation that, that he sees here, that you have these people who act like there's great power in Christ, but they actually deny his power because they're really corrupted by the world and that their folly should be known to those who really believe who, what, who God is and what he has done in Jesus. And you'd like to think that, and that's true for many, but they are the ones who lead certain people astray, who are easily led astray. And we can think of those who capture weak women or weak-minded people. People easily led astray and seduced into uh, justifying their uh, covetousness and their uh, worldly lusts. And we can see all kinds of that in evidence all around us to this very day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter also provides for us uh, a warning about those who would not believe, the mockers. Those who want to know, okay, well, where is this Jesus uh, that you say is coming? Because uh, everything's coming, it continues just like it was. Uh, everything continues and carries on. 
And uh, Peter says that such people uh, have forgotten about the deluge. Uh, they walk in their own lusts, and they do not seem to care at all for God. And so we see that we're in, in these last times, you'll have believers who become like the world, and of course you have the people in the world. And the way that those in the world are, they're worldly people. Sinners sin. Why should we expect anything else than sinners sinning? Uh, sinners sin, and therefore uh, they persist in their sin. They're going to continue sin. They're going to resist what is right and good, and they're going to harass, persecute, and cause great suffering even perhaps to those who seek to do what is good and right and holy. But we do well to wonder, why do the apostles warn us about these things? And, and what is this great warning? We see in this great warning that there is going to be this time when people are no longer going to hold to the truth of God in Christ, and they're going to compromise the gospel in ways that suit their desires. That was already at work in Paul's own time with the Judaizer controversy, where, lo and behold, Jewish Christians are finding it really difficult to welcome Gentiles as such and insist they must observe the law of Moses to be saved. And then you have the Gnostics going the other direction, where the Docetists who think that Jesus only seemed to be human, not really human, or the Gnostics are still still holding on to Greek philosophy and the presumptions and assumptions of Greek philosophy that they're now kind of changing the story of what Jesus did to fit their uh, preconceived notions. And that's the story that we've seen ever since. We have seen to our very own day people who, in the face of all kinds of societal, cultural, ideological pressures, conform and adapt the gospel to fit their own ends. And certainly you can see that how many are compromising in what is considered a liberal fashion uh, uh, to justify a sexual sins, to excuse the rampant individualism in our culture. But it's just as much there in people who are trying to uphold the Victorian concept of what masculinity and femininity should be and who want us to look more to John Wayne than to Jesus for such an example. It is being done by those who have tried to uphold white supremacy and have really established a gospel for white supremacy and white supremacists in the way that they act and behave themselves and very much adapted the gospel to try to meet that particular ideology and that particular uh, line of thought. So it's something that was happening in the first century and we see it in the 20th and 21st century. It continues to go on. We also see a reaction and an overreaction where somebody goes too far one way and so people go the other far, way too far. Uh, we saw that with the Judaizers and the Gnostics. We can see that when it comes to human role and faith versus divine agency and grace. We can see that in the way the church is to be organized and run. We can see that with the faith and works thing in general. We can see this on issue after issue after issue, action, overreaction, and all of these type of things that have led to this huge world of religious confusion. And these passages are written not for us to say, well, look at how we're doing well and pat ourselves on the back, but as a warning. The, Paul is warning Timothy, you've got to maintain your balance in the truth. You've got to continue to insist on the gospel as it was handed to you. And we need to be cognizant that how others have gone astray because they have gone after the passions of the world, either in ways to constrict or to expand in however many ways, we are buffeted by those same pressures. We are tempted to do the same thing. We could be easily like them. And so it is not for us to go and just point fingers at everybody else while we miss the log that is in our own eye. 
we need to consider ourselves. How might we be accommodating uh, the gospel of Christ to our particular societal customs or cultural ideas, which may be the current cultural ideas, or it might be the previous status quo uh, of culture's ideas. Uh, where are we offended by the gospel according to what we like to think and feel? Where are those points where we are easily tempted to want to have people come and tell us what we want to hear as opposed to those healthy teachings in Christ? How could we be tempted, like so many before us have been, to have fallen away from the faith and wandering off to myths because those myths were far more enticing than the truth? And again, we should very much be concerned about those dangers that we hear constantly preached against and warned about, but we should be just as vigilant, if not more so, about the ones that we feel much closer to, the ones that don't get condemned as much, about uh, our materialism, about uh, Christian nationalism, about our treatment of other people, about uh, perhaps our own challenges when it comes to our temperament and our behaviors as opposed to the more easily identified sinful ones of others. We're also told here though in a strange comfort that that's going to happen because what Paul and Peter and Jude want Christians to do is understand this is what's going to happen. Don't be surprised when it happens. And Jude tells the Christians exactly what they're supposed to do about it that in Jude chapter uh, 1 and verse 20, Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So Jude lays it out here and says, look, there are going to be these people who are going to fall away. Just because you're hearing all these different other ideas doesn't mean you should say, wait a second, do I need to go after them? Because do they know something I don't? You should expect there to be a falling away. You should expect people to wander off into myths. You need to recognize that's what people are going to do. And likewise, you're going to have plenty of people in the world who are still going to be worldly and do their worldly thing and resist the truth. That is why you need to keep yourself in the faith. You need to try to encourage the people to stay in the faith and wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the story of the end, right? Because what's that consistent witness about what's going to happen when the end of time actually comes? That Jesus is going to come when no one is expecting that thief in the night in Matthew 24 and 25, 2 Peter 3, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's going to come to judge everyone, the living and the dead. It'll be the day of the resurrection where death, the final enemy, will be defeated. All will be raised, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of condemnation. We will meet the Lord in the air and always be with him. That the time is short. We don't know how short it is, long it is relatively, but the time is going to come when all of this will uh, be over. When we will no longer be in this tense period where we have so many going one way and so many going another way. The Lord is going to return. There is going to be justice. There is going to be a reconciliation. There is going to be an accounting for all that has been done. And all of this is to be a source of comfort. We are to comfort ourselves with these words in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18. Because while we're still here, we're in the last days. And in the last days, the portrayal that we see here 
in the New Testament the last days was certainly true of that second, third generation of Christians, and it's just as true today. We see people wandering off into myths all the time, heaping up teachers to teach what they want to hear, uh, people who've heard doctrines of demons and given assent to them, many who want to restrict what God has not restricted, and others who want to uh, open up what God has bound. We see this going on all the time. We can see it uh, in, in the whole range of perspectives. Uh, it is not a liberal problem or a conservative problem. It happens across uh, any kind of spectrum that you want to imagine. And of course, we still have those in the world who are acting in worldly ways. And they continue to be of the world. And we are not to be surprised at this. We should not be happy about this. We should lament it. But we should not fall into despair about it. This is how it goes in the last days. But we are awaiting from heaven a savior who is going to transform our bodies of humiliation to be like his glorious body and he's going to return one day like a thief in the night when not expected not according to some pre-thought out scheme that you have to piece together from 50 different scriptures but he's just going to come back there will be a judgment everything will be normal until it isn't and then we will be with the lord in heaven and the resurrection in the new heavens and new earth or we will find ourselves in condemnation if we have not obtained life in Christ. That is why it's so important to understand that we are living in the end times. We are living in the last days. And this should lead us to faith and repentance and preparation because we do not know when this is all going to go down. You can't trust, well, we've got this to happen and this to happen, this to happen. He could come back at any time and he will catch many people unaware and unprepared. So let us all be prepared. Let us recognize that we're living in the last days. We should see around us the signs of the last days. There are many who are going off into mist and others who are living in worldly ways and it is for us to maintain our holy faith, praying in that spirit, keeping ourselves in love of God, and we wait for that mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ which we know is coming and is coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for the blessings of life that you've given us, your love and care for us, your covenant loyalty that you've expressed to us in Jesus. And we're thankful for uh, everything you've given us in Christ, the hope of resurrection, the redemption that we have in him, and for uh, the hope that we nourish, that we will spend eternity with him one day. Uh, we're thankful for one another in the kingdom. We're thankful for the spirit and the word and for all the many blessings you've given us. At this time, Father, we want to pray for those who are ill, that you would heal them, that you would strengthen and sustain those who are in difficulty, distress, and grief. We pray that you would provide for those in need and preserve life where it is in danger. We pray that your justice and righteousness would flow in our land and that the powers and principalities and their schemes would submit to your purposes and glorify you. We pray, uh, Father, for the return of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We understand that we are in these last days. We pray that you would give us a heart and mind of wisdom and discernment to be able to recognize where we are to embody Jesus in our culture in ways that suit the culture and where we might be tempted to adapt and compromise the gospel to conform to culture. And that we strongly and boldly affirm the gospel and embody it in our place and in our time. And we pray, Father, that we would be given the discernment to recognize when people are going astray into myths and that we do all we can in love and humility to warn them away from it and to stand firm in the faith uh, that we do not internalize all of the mockery, taunting, and persecution we receive from those in the world uh, and that we maintain ourselves in the faith uh, and maintain the patience in the spirit 
to obtain the mercy we are waiting for from the Lord Jesus. And amen. May he come quickly. Maranatha. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, so glad that you've joined us. Love to hear your thoughts on this topic. You hear a lot about the last days, right? Do we live in the last days? How are we living in the last days? What do we see that shows us we're living in the last days? And what should we expect when Jesus returns? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe you have other questions, comments. Love to hear from you. Let us know in the comments. Subscribe to us or check us out at venistrychrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.